Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, June 17th, we are studying James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. God has brought us forth as his people by his word of truth, but that word is not heard only once, and it is not only heard. This word brings about good deeds in the lives of Christians. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Pastor Wolfmuller serves at St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. Pastor Wolfmuller, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you. Fantastic to be here. Pastor Wolfmuller, we're in the first chapter of James, the very end of that. We've seen plenty of material from from St. James so far. What material do we need to remind ourselves? What do we need to remember about this epistle as a whole going into our text for today? Well, maybe, you know, James gives us a hint about what is the circumstance that he's writing in, in the very first verse and then towards the very end. He says, count it all joy when you suffer various trials. So he's giving instructions to the Christians uh, who are suffering for their Christianity. This is now the normal state, by the way, of the Christian life is suffering. So Jesus says that that when if we want to follow him, we have to take up our cross and follow him. Martin Luther says that it's the seventh mark. I think it's the seventh mark of the seven marks of the church is the holy, precious cross. So the Christian bears the cross, and we bear the cross in a different way. So James is going to set us—I think this is maybe the theme of James, because I think James is kind of a, a, a sermon based on the Sermon on the Mount. That's it. Seemed, that's how it reads to me anyways. And, and Jesus is in the Sermon on the Mount preaching the kingdom of God, which is to say he's, he is revealing a new way to— be human. So Jesus is coming to us, teaching us a new way of life, a new way of living, a new way of suffering, a new way of dying, a new way of talking, a new way of thinking, a new a new way of everything. And so James picks up on that and says that this newness of life is manifesting itself uh, even in the midst of suffering and persecution. James sometimes gets a, a bad rap among Lutherans. That's one of the reasons that I, I wanted to look at it here on Sharper Iron. We actually just finished the book of Romans here, and now we're in James. And 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 some some would say, you know, James and Paul contradict each other. Pastor Mulfamiller, why is it worth our time to, to take a look at a, an epistle like James? Well, it's so helpful. I mean, it, it has so much wisdom in it. It's a, it is in some ways the the wisdom book of the New Testament. Uh, it does have a bad rap amongst the Lutherans because why? Well, why it was traditionally understood as anti-legomena. That means in the very earliest collections of the scriptures, not every collection had James and a few other books like Hebrews and Second Peter and Revelation. So, so there's a few books that weren't in every collection as the Bibles were being collected uh, in the various churches, and then Luther. And so that status of anti-legomena, not in every place from the very beginning. Uh, held through to the Reformation. So when Luther was was publishing the New Testament in German, he put James towards the end with the other antilegomena and uh, and said that it was an epistle of straw. It's an interesting phrase, uh, the epistle of straw. It probably sounds harder to our ears than it would when Luther first said it, but, but, uh, but Luther f- sort of felt the pain of the verses in James being used against the gospel, used against Romans, used against the freedom of the Christian, used, used against the purity of the doctrine of justification. And and so Luther, I think, was probably reacting and maybe overreacting to that. But but still, he, he writes beautiful things about James. And when it comes to this text that you'll deal with in the next few days, where James says, I'll show you my faith by my works, um, when the Lutheran when the Lutherans were challenged with that text by the Roman Catholics, they didn't say, oh, well, it's just James, so it doesn't matter. They said, no, no, we believe that text to be true. And they showed how their doctrine was in congruity with the preaching of, of St. James. So they always went to the text and delighted in the text and, and loved the text. Um, and so we, we ought to do that as well. I mean, in, 
in this text, the Holy Spirit comes and gives us both wisdom and also encouragement, which is the two things we most desperately need. Mm-hmm. You, you called this the the wisdom literature of the New Testament, and I, I agree that this certainly, it reads a lot like uh, the book of Proverbs in many respects. You, you get some hints of Ecclesiastes and, and Psalms, that wisdom literature of the Old Testament, you see that here. Sometimes that type of literature, maybe not Psalms so much, but Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, sometimes that type of literature can be very hard to see Christ there. And, and I think sometimes that's true of the book of James. It's hard to see Christ or at least Christ as Savior. He certainly comes through as Christ's example, but but how do we see Christ in the book of James? Well, for one thing, it's we're going to have it, and we'll have it in our text as well, is that this new life that the Lord sets us to live is something that he works in us. It's something that's brought to us. So that as Jesus ascends into heaven and sends forth the Holy Spirit to bring life in his word, that's the life that's being brought in by James, by this, by this letter, by this epistle. So it's, it's, it's from Jesus. I mean, it can't, there, I don't, I, it, it can't get any more direct than that. I mean, this is a letter from the ascend, from the risen and ascended Lord to his church to encourage us in this life below while we wait for the life above. And, and so it's, it, it is the voice of Jesus that we're hearing in these words. Sometimes Jesus tells us that that our sins are forgiven. Sometimes Jesus gives us promises like, if you lack wisdom, ask and the Lord will give it to you. What a great promise from, from James chapter one. Sometimes the voice of Jesus says, look, you're, you have a new life begotten by the spirit. So, so your living looks differently, but it's all the same voice. It's all the same Jesus who loves us and died for us and who is, who in his love cannot leave us alone, but continues to care for us through these words. One more thing on the way, on, by way of introduction, it, you you said earlier as, as we were talking that the theme of James is found in verses seventeen through eighteen. What is that theme that you see there in those verses, and and how does it help us into our text for today? Yeah, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by His word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. It's, a, it's actually a stunningly beautiful text. So that every good gift comes down from God the Father. So that our lives are lives of receiving his good gifts. And the whole book of James is going to be an invitation to turn from our own striving and our own wisdom and our own efforts to this life of receiving God's gifts and God's goodness. In fact, that's how, it, that's how our life began. We were brought forth by the word of truth that we'd be kind of first fruits of his creatures. So 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 it's almost like in a way the the resurrection has has already begun to creep in. We're we're living this mortal life but because the Lord's word like a seed has been implanted into our ears and into our hearts now this new life, the eternal life of God, the the life of Christ that that knows nothing of sin or death that this is starting to grow in us and that is wonderful. Let's take a look at the text for today, James chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. James writes, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Hmm. That's the text for today, James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. Pastor Wolfmuller, one of the the challenges that I have with the book of James is— 
connecting one section to the next. Uh, we were talking about wisdom literature earlier, and sometimes the book of Proverbs, for example, can just seem like here's one bit of advice, and here's another bit of advice, and here's another, and, and maybe they're related, maybe they're not. Sometimes James comes off that way a bit. I, I don't think that's the case, but it, it looks that way at times. What What is the move that James is making from the previous text into this one? Well, so... Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I was looking at, I, I like to look at Martin Franzman for outlines. So the word of the Lord grows is, is his take on the New Testament. It's a beautiful text. In fact, I think it, someone told me who knew Martin Franzman that that was the thing he was most proud of, his exegetical work. He's known amongst, in our circles, as a, as a hymn writer and a poet, but he, he loved his exegetical stuff. I mean, that's the work he, he really loved. So so he does these beautiful outlines, and the outline that he offers for the book of James is all centered around the, the, the theme of turn or repent, turn ye. And he says that this first section, the whole chapter one, should be turned to God, the giver of perfect gifts. And to the first section, the, the, chapter one, verses two to 18, turn to the God who perfects you by trial. And then this section, turn to the God who has implanted his word in you. And then he's going to go on to the, turn to the with a true faith, not a show in the chapter two. And chapter three is teachers to turn to true wisdom that comes only from God. And chapter four, turn from the assimilation with the world to God who gives the Holy Spirit and so forth. So it's going to be, but that turning is just another way of capturing the ancient wisdom idea of the two ways. Do you know this? I, I used to know this, and the, the word that comes to mind is the hakma wisdom. Is that? Am I thinking? You know what I'm talking about? That that's the word. Hakma is the word for wisdom in Hebrew. There's this idea that that the hakma was the two ways. This is what I'm trying to that that wisdom is always putting two paths before you. It's putting you at a fork in the road, and and so there's this way and this way, the broad path and the narrow path, the way of wisdom and the way of foolishness, the way of life, and the way of death. And so so this wisdom literature, literature almost kind of stylistically and in every way, is going to put you at that fork in the road. And now you've got to go the way of wisdom. And James does that. He's going to put you at, a, he's going to just put you at these forks in the road, and he's going to say, now here's the way that the Lord Jesus would have you go. Here's the way that the new man walks. Here's the way that um, here, here's the good things that you pursue. And so the word, and how interesting, in chapter 1, verse 18, that the word has begotten us anew. The word of God has given us new life. The gospel has, has raised us from the deadness of sin to the life that's in Christ. And now that's going to have its first effect in the way that we walk, in the path that we take, that we are, that we are quick to listen and we're slow to speak, and we're slow to anger. So that there's a so that the word that renews our life is also going to renew our speech. It's going to renew the way we talk. It's going to renew the way we think. It's going to renew the way we listen. It's going to renew the, the, the way that we hear what other people are saying, both good and bad. It's going to renew our temper. <laughs> it's going to renew our anger. So that that word that gives us new life one of the first place that renewal shows up is in the words that we use. Hmm. So, I mean, these verse 19, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. It just comes off like, I mean, it sounds like that's just really good advice. That's something that your mom and your dad should tell you growing up. Hey, this is, this is just a good thing to do. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Uh, but I think it's it's more than that. I mean, you you founded it in these two ways. Now that we've been redeemed by Christ, which is the narrow way, you're at that fork in the road. So it's it's more than just good advice. But I mean, I guess dig in like quick to hear what to hear the word of God yeah, to hear yeah. my neighbor both it, slow to speak yeah. like what? <laughs> yeah. it, I mean, it's good advice. I mean, it's it. You're right. It's more than good advice. It's certainly not less than good advice, though. You know. So this is right. This, what's this thing? You know, the Lord has given you two ears and one mouth for a reason. That we, and, and there's something really there. there uh, I don't know how far we can press this, but the fact that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, or or even the fact that 
that the Christian is is pictured constantly in the scriptures as a sheep. And 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 what does the sheep do? What does the lamb do? It hears the voice of the good shepherd. So that our our chief Christian act is the act of hearing, of listening, and listening to the voice of God. It there's you know I mean we can think about it medically that just the fact that your hearing is a passive thing. You you're not looking around. You're he- you're just hearing is what happens, and that your hearing is always the. It never shuts off in a way. You listen even when you're sleeping. You're listening. Um, that's why if the lights turn on, it doesn't wake you up. But if if a, if something bangs, it does. So 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 you're listening even when you're sleeping. Even when people are in comas, they talk about this that that they're able to hear. I remember being Timothy at a at a deathbed of a of a man who was having seizures. So he'd have a seizure and he would have a coma, and then he would come out of it for a little bit, and that kind of that was happening for a while, and the family was there. It was a terrible thing to watch, but but one of the things that he said was, so we would be singing to him and praying for him and reading to him as as he was in his seizures and even as he was in his coma. And he came out and he said, "I can hear you, even when I'm even when I'm asleep, when I'm sleeping, when I'm unconscious, I can hear you. Don't stop singing." And so our hearing, the Lord almost just. He has he's he's opened that door to our hearts so that he can always get in. So there's something really profound to our hearing. We we always think that we we connect faith to sight. We we trust our eyes more than our ears, which is strange. Because the scriptures say that faith comes by hearing, that we walk by we walk by faith and not by sight, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the confidence of things not seen. Jesus says, blessed are you who believe and have not seen. So that while we have this tendency to always connect our faith to what we see, the the Holy Spirit connects it to what we hear. So the Christian should, above all things, be good at listening. That, that's, that's, our, that's our chief Christian act, is to listen to God, to listen to the Scriptures, to listen to the voice of Jesus revealed in the prophets and the apostles, to listen. And that goes also then to our neighbor. And one of the one of the most profound ways we bless other people is by listening to them. And it's an incredible gift of love. We don't often think of it this way. It's an incredible gift of love to just go to someone and say, hey, tell me your story, and then simply to listen to them w- with care and with attention and with love. And, and that listening is really is really a wonderful gift. It probably heals people. And, you know, there's all these accounts of people whose lives have been saved just because they've someone has finally listened to them. It's one of the confidences that we have that the Lord hears our prayers. And so we go and and listen to one another. This should be one of the marks of our sanctified life is that we're quick to listen. I was enjoying listening to you right right then. Yeah. So, and I I think you connected that well, that this matter of, of quick to hear, to listen to some, to first to God, then to someone else, and slow to speak. Those two things go hand in hand. That as as we exercise this before God, it also comes before our neighbor. And then it it seems that the matter of being slow to anger, which James placed third in that list, is a result of that. That when I'm quick to hear, slow to speak, both before God and before my neighbor, that the result is that I'm I'm slow to become angry, whether angry at God or angry at my neighbor. Certainly, it's very easy to be angry at my neighbor when I'm doing all the talking and not a lot of listening. And then James continues with that thought of anger, that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So we should spend some time reflecting upon this matter of anger that James brings up. There's a lot to say here. Um, Jesus talks about anger as breaking the fifth commandment. I tell you, if you're angry with your brother, you've killed him in your heart. And yet there is a way that there's a, a righteous anger. So Paul will say, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Be angry, but do not sin. So there's a way that our anger can be not sinful. The way that I like to think of it, do you tell me if this is helpful, is there's a distinction between an anger of office and an anger of person. So if I'm if I have an office of anger, like father or teacher in the church or whatever, judge, soldier, That's an, there's an office where there's going to be a negative judgment made. So for example, if I hear false teaching, 
I'm, I'm rightly to be angry at that because I'm a teacher in the church. And so I should be angry about false teaching, and I should go and rebuke it and correct it, speak against it. I'm a father, so I should be angry when my children um, are foolish or whatever. And so I can go and I, and I meet out a certain punishment, a discipline or whatever, so that they can be trained in a good and godly way to be helpful to, to their neighbor and so forth. Or if I'm a soldier, I go to war and and the things that I'm doing are, as I go and fight, slay and burn and everything else like this, there's, a, there's an anger that's there, but it's an anger of office. I'm doing it because I'm told. Now, distinguish that between an anger of person. When I'm personally offended, when I'm sinned against, when I'm spoken against, when I'm hurt or harmed or abused or any way, and I don't have the office to, to correct the other person. I don't have the office to rebuke the other person. I'm just going to do it as a person. That's the anger that's murder. That's the anger that produces, that does not produce the righteousness of God. So the judge can say to the criminal, I sentence you to 10 years in prison. He doesn't have to have any anger in his voice. His blood pressure isn't raised at all, he's, but he's executing an office of righteous anger. But if he's doing it because he himself is personally offended or because he himself is personally hurt, he's acting in vengeance to try to make things right, then that's when the danger gets in. If I'm, if I'm disciplining my child, not because I'm trying to help them, but because I personally am very upset at the way they treated me or whatever, now I'm not acting out of office, but out of person. And that personal anger is never authorized by the Lord Jesus for the Christian. It's always forbidden. That we, we, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Leave room for wrath. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Uh, if someone demands of you a mile, go two miles, and so forth. That we pray for those who persecute us, that we, that we bless those who spitefully use us, that we love our enemies. And so this, I, this, this idea of personal anger, of getting even because we're sinned against, is what James is warning about here and what the scriptures constantly are warning us about. I, I think it is a helpful distinction to make the matter of anger in an office versus a, a personal anger, because it, it does it, it prevents us from just throwing out any sense of of the commandments that God has given, any sense of the order that He has established, as as you've pointed out in in areas such as government or areas such as as parents, that that those orders that God has established remain, and and when I have that anger in an office, then I. I have the confidence to know that I'm acting with God's authority. That's another key word that you use there, the authority that God has given me to do that, not on my own, but because that's his order that's being upheld. The The only, and I don't, not that it, it's unhelpful, but the only thing about it is, as, as, a, as a sinful man, sometimes it's very easy for the anger of office to slip into a personal anger. And I... Ah, I don't know that I, I do a very good job of that all the time. Well, look, that's the that's the very danger. I mean, that's the point is that so anger by its very nature is self-justifying. In fact, anger anger is an argument for lovelessness. If you want to I think if we want to define anger theologically, we could say that anger is justified lovelessness. And so it and so we because we're so good at justifying ourselves we're good at being angry some people you you know you meet sometimes you meet people and there's angry people and you realize and and you try to you're trying to help by saying hey well maybe let's not be so angry about this and after a while you realize wait a minute they like being angry <laughs> they, they they that's just that's how they're gonna be because they're because we're good at it because it, it if I'm angry at you Timothy this is how it goes if you say you sin against me but you poke me in the eye or whatever and now I'm angry at you. And that means I know I have the command from God to love my neighbor, but I can look at you and say, no, nope, you are not my neighbor. You're my enemy. I don't have to love you. You poked me in the eye. I don't have to be good to you. I don't have to bless you. I don't have to treat you kindly. I can ignore you. I can talk bad about you. I can do whatever I want. And you see, I can sin against you, but it doesn't feel like sin. In fact, to me, anger makes sin feel like a good work. I can, I mean, this is what kind of we're wrestling with when, when protests turn to riots is that, is that the, the sin, when you're angry, the sin feels in the conscience like a good work. So that, so that anger works as like a, 
as like a drug in the conscience to numb it either in a towards an institution or towards a person or towards a whatever. And we can get addicted to that. And that's, this is why anger is so dangerous. It's a destroyer. Well, and I, I mean, that everything that you've said there, I think, fits perfectly with what James says about this, that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If, if anger is justified lovelessness, if anger makes sin feel like a good work, then the anger of man is not going to produce the righteousness of God. Right. That's right. So there's an anger of God, and as office holders, like as a pastor or, or a dad or a parent or as a soldier or a ruler or whatever, citizen— there's a righteous. There's an anger of God, and that's what we're after. We it's the anger of man that's the dangerous thing. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, looking at the end of James chapter one. We're going to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Wednesday, June 17th. We are looking at James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27 with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. He serves at St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. Pastor Wolfmuller, prior to the break, we were looking at verses 19 and 20. Paul, Paul, not Paul, James. I've been in Romans for so long. James picks up in verse 21. After saying the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, he says, therefore, here's the conclusion, put away filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. So, so take something away and instead have something else put in, seems the picture. That's right. Filthiness is replaced by the word. Rampant wickedness is replaced by meekness and faith. So that so that it's all this it Paul does talk like this, the putting off and the putting on. So put off the old self and put on the new man. Put off the flesh, put on the spirit. So there's this you're you're when you're a Christian, you're changing your clothes. You're putting down the fig leaves and you're taking up the the skins. It's a it's a it's a laying down of the of the of the of the mortal nature that we're conceived and born in, and it's taking up the immortal gifts of God and Christ that He gives to us in the Word. Beautiful. So that this idea of the Word that is able to save our souls, the Word that's able to cause us to be born again, is uh, is key here. It's the the power is not in us. The power is in the Word. Well, I mean that that goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning when we were introducing this as to you know where where do we see Jesus in this and and the gospel here here it is it's the implanted word that is able to save your souls and keeping that in mind I think is going to help us as we continue here with some language that sometimes makes I think might make some Lutherans uncomfortable where we start talking about doing the word before we get there just real quickly because you 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 brought up that, that maybe James is a sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. I, I've seen that too. And I, I wonder, like, I mean, just as one example, the meekness brings to mind the Beatitudes mm-hmm. of Jesus. That's right. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. Is it Jesus turns everything on its head. In, in his kingdom, everything is upside down. So we normally think the strong are the ones that inherit the earth, but Jesus says, nope. We normally think the the happy are the ones who get the things they need. Nope, the mourning. We you know we the, we normally think that the full are those who conquer. Nope, it's the hungry. So Jesus turns everything on its head. In fact, he, you know, Jesus turns he turns what we think about God on its head. You know, what do you just imagine God, all powerful? You do not think of a man dying on the cross. So, so everything in the, in the kingdom of God, everything is turned on its head. And so we're also turned upside down in this world or, or right side up or the world is turned upside down to us or something. It's, everything's upside down. 
So what are you supposed to do? You you are living a different life. You're going a different direction. There's the there's the thrust of sinful humanity. There's the kind of momentum of this fallen world, and we're standing against it. We're we're going we're we're walking upstream, and so the whole book is the whole letter is about that. So so you could go with the sort of downstream. You could go with the flow, the broad road that leads to destruction. That's filthiness and rampant wickedness. Or you can, with meekness, receive or welcome. I, th- I like that translation. You can welcome the implanted word, which saves your souls. So that's, those are the two options. You, it's, it's a life bound up to the Lord's word, especially to his absolution, his forgiveness. Or it's a, it's a, it's a life bound up to the, to the power struggle of the fallen world. So this implanted word is it, it's implanted through the ears. So so we are hearers of the word, but James says that's that's not all. He says we we also must be doers of the word, lest we deceive ourselves. And this is where Lutherans saved by grace through faith, no works. This was this is what Saint Paul said in in the letter to the Romans multiple times. Here James starts to. Uh, I don't know. We get uncomfortable, maybe. Right. Well, it's because. So, what if what if we just what if we do it this way, Timothy? What if instead of focusing on the us in this part in this verse here, be doers of the word? What if we just focused on the fact of the word? Because I think this says a lot more than about the word than it does about us. In, In other words, what James is saying is that this word that saves our souls is not simply a word that's heard and listened to. The very nature of this word is that it's living and active. The the very nature of this word, because it's God's word, is that it's inspired and therefore inspiring. And not in the kind of, you know, rah-rah, get-behind-the-team inspired. It's It brings to life. It's full of the Spirit. There's a, like Philip Melanchthon, one of our old Lutheran fathers, would always say, Stuff like faith that grabs a hold of the Word of God also grabs the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not asleep. The Holy Spirit's alive. The Holy Spirit's busy. Or, or Luther talks about faith. He says, faith is not a dead thing, like a duck floating on the water. <laughs> it's like, I guess, a dead duck floating on the water. How does he say <laughs> faith is not like a Faith is not like a duck floating on the water. Faith is like the fire that boils the water. So this word, the very nature of this word, is that it can't just be listened to, like, oh, that's nice, and then you can walk away unscathed by it, like, oh, I've heard something new, like the philosophers on, on Mars Hill. No, this word is an active word. It, 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 it comes to life. It, it, it shows up. It, it recreates us and makes us into different people so that we, so that everything is different. The way we think, the way we act, the way we talk, the way we live, the way we serve, everything is different. So be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. This word can't just be heard. If anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, it's like a man. And so here we come to this picture, right? It's like the man who looks at his face in a mirror and he studies himself. Oh, there's my eyebrows and, you know, there's my nose and whatever. And then he goes away and he immediately forgets what he looks like. (laughs) This is, just, this is this is the hypocrisy of the person who who hears God's word and then and then just and 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 nothing else shows up. So so there was a time I've just you know as a joke one time. Uh, I think we were sitting at dinner and I must have done I was I had food on my face like like mustard from a hot dog. So you can imagine this a big piece of like a drip of mustard on my chin and Carrie, my wife says, honey, you've got mustard on your chin. So I got up and I went in the, I looked in the mirror and then I just came and sat right back down. I didn't wipe the mustard away. You know, that is the picture. That's the stupidity of the hypocritical Christian that James is putting before us. You're going to do that. You're going to go and you're going to see that you've got a, a big chunk of mustard on your face and you're not going to wipe it off. That's what you're going to do? Now, that that kind of hypocrisy is just, it's impossible to live with when the brightness 
of the Lord's word is shining on us. Mm. So, I mean, that this picture of the word as a mirror, typically just, you know, in terms of the way we often teach the catechism, when we think about the word as a mirror, we often think about the law. That's, this is the second use of the law, right? That, that we look in the law, I see myself, I'm a sinner. But I, I think James is, is he being broader with his use of the word here in terms of, in terms of the mirror? Well, maybe, but but at least this, because, you know, the law as a mirror, remember that a mirror only works when there's lights. So if you go and look in the mirror, but it's in the dark, it's, you know, you probably look great. <laughs> so, so there's a, the mirror of the, the law shows us ourself, but it shows us ourself in the light of the holiness of God. And that light shines in the face of Jesus Christ. So the law does show us more than ourselves. It does show us Christ, but it puts our own sin in contrast to the perfection of Christ. And as it's doing that, then it's doing its law work, right? It's showing us what it, how did, what's the language that James used here? Uh, uh, filthy. It shows us our filthiness. It shows us our rampant wickedness. It's showing us our sinful flesh, showing us our mistakes. It's showing us how we have failed to be Christ-like to our neighbors, and so forth. So it does show us Christ, but it it's showing us Christ as the as the perfect Son of God and and ourselves in light of that. Now, the nice thing, so so in that so in so far as that goes, that's law. And it's showing us not only repentance, but also, and remember this, I, I think sometimes we forget about this because when we divide up the first and second and third use of the law, so the first use is the curb, the law shows us how we ought to live. The second use is the is the mirror. It shows us our own sin. The third use is the guide, which shows the Christian how how God's love and law and strength shows up in our renewed lives. So so we think of the law in those three uses, but remember they're all connected to one another. It's all the same law. And so when the law is showing us our sin, it's also creating in us this disgust for our sinful flesh. And this desire to be rid of it and to be pursuing godliness and righteousness and so forth. So all this is happening all at once. And so, so, it's, a, uh, so it's a good reminder that the, that the law pictures Jesus before us, but that's a, a frightful picture. Now, does this text give us some gospel here? I suppose we could get there, but it's the back end, but it's this. And it's good for us to remember, and that is that that holiness of Jesus, which condemns us because of how we live, what we say, and what we do, that holiness is precisely the holiness that is ours by faith. So that the light of Christ, which exposes our own sinfulness, is the light that God gives to us when we trust his promise, when, we, when, we, when our sins are forgiven. Uh, when his atonement is brought to us as his children in the gift of baptism. James then wraps that image up in, in verse 25. He says, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, that might be worth digging into the law of liberty. What does that mean? That one who does this and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. What, what is this law of liberty? What's the, the blessing in the doing? Yeah, that's right. So that this word, um, you know, there's a way, huh, there's a way that the devil is always tempting us to see the law of God as bondage, <laughs> right? So the Lord hates you. That's why he says you shouldn't steal because he doesn't want you to have that thing that you want, <laughs> The Lord hates you. That's why he says, don't commit adultery, because he doesn't want you to have that person that you want, or whatever. This is, how, this is the devil's lie. We see it in Psalm 2, come where the kings of the nations come together, and they say, let us cut the cords of the Lord. We, we're, the, Lord is, the Lord has wrapped us, he's imprisoned us in his commandments, and we're going to break free. So that's always this idea of, of liberation, is that we're, 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 we're freeing ourselves from the Lord's bonds. And that is a bad place to be. I mean, it's a, it's a dangerous temptation. And James is saying, look, no, the law of the Lord is not bondage. The law of the Lord is liberty. 
it's not breaking the law that leads to life. It's it's keeping the law that leads to life. That's why the Lord has given us the laws to protect life and all of his good gifts and so forth. So don't be tempted to think that the law is the enemy. No, the law that the Lord gives is the law of liberty. So keep at it. Keep at it, even though it's it's hard. I mean, it hurts our eyes. The brightness of the law is painful when we, especially as we see the 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 filthy, rampant wickedness in our own lives. But keep at it, James says. Don't turn away, and don't forget. But let the Lord's word have its way with you, and there's a blessing that comes in that. Hmm. And this is a it's just a plain sort of truth that again I think we've maybe forgotten, and that is that the Lord promises blessings to those who keep the law. Now the devil also promises to harm those who keep the law. So in the end, it's probably works out, but as a, as a zero sum game, but still we want it. We're, we're after those blessings that the Lord gives. Paul talks about the fourth commandment this way, honor your father and mother. So it'll go well with you. It's the first commandment with a promise. So there's not only promises in the gospel, there's promises in the law and there's blessings that come from, from letting the Lord sort of purge our sinful imaginations purge the desires of the flesh and craft good and godly desires in us, there's blessings that come from that. When you're talking about the law of liberty there, I'm reminded of the way St. Paul talks about being a slave to God in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 6, he he compares and contrasts those two things. What does it mean to be a, a slave to God or a slave to righteousness? What does it mean to be a slave to sin? And and certainly the the slavery to sin certainly promises certain blessings, but Paul says that leads to death. And and here, I mean, I think St. Paul and St. James, they, they match up quite nicely, that, that there is great blessing in being a slave to God, in letting him be Lord with all of the blessings that, that comes from that. And, and as, I mean, lest we forget what this word is that, that James is talking about, it is the word that is implanted in you to save your soul. We, we can never lose that foundation as we're talking about this matter of hearing the word and then that word. And I appreciate the way you, you said this is really about more about the word than it is about us. What does that word do when we hear it? It's it's so powerful that it begins to to work within us and we we start to do it. We don't don't do it perfectly, but we start to do it and and if we're if we're not well then then we're like this fool with with mustard on his face. <laughs> I'm glad I get to be the example of the fool. <laughs> the situation. Uh, that's right. So as as James continues then in into verse 26, he 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 continues with with his the same same thinking. If if anyone thinks he is religious. Now this is you know, we we talk about religion and being religious. It, it's a word that gets looked down upon in, in our world today. I think, oh, you're one of those religious types, Pastor Wolfmuller. It's not a word, at least that we see. I think all that often in the scriptures that gets translated religious. Just comment on that word a little bit, Pastor Wolfmuller. You know, there's a famous phrase that I used to remember this tagline all the time. I probably said it myself. I'm not. Uh, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Or I heard people say, um, you know, I'm against organized religions. And I would say that too. I'm not a religious person. I don't like religion. And I think for whatever reason, at least in the evangelical mind, the idea of being religious means legalistic. I, th- I think I think that phrase, I'm... Uh, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I think that's actually trying to get to the distinction between law and gospel. Now, it doesn't get there. It's very clunky. It's probably not helpful at all. But I appreciate the sentiment behind it because they want to say, look, uh, Christianity is not just about all the rules that you have to keep. It's actually about a person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who took our sins and died in our place and now gives us that redemption. And so far as it's trying to say that, I suppose I appreciate it, but we should not say that Christianity is not a religion because it is a religion. In fact, it's the religion. (laughs) And this is what James is saying here. There's a lot of false religions, but there's a true religion. There's a true way of living like a Christian, of having a devoted life. So there's a negative and there's a positive. So 
On the negative side, if anyone thinks he's religious but doesn't bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart, his religion is worthless. So if you're just always wagging your tongue, if you are not slow to speak and quick to listen, but rather quick to speak and quick to anger, quick to spout off, quick to curse or whatever, that is not that is not the Christian life. So that's a negative way. And then the positive, religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world so that we don't spout off, we control our tongue, and but we go and care for the widow and the orphan, that is, for those who cannot care for themselves, for those who are, who are vulnerable and who are in danger of being afflicted or oppressed, abused in some way, and we go and we visit them in their affliction. And we are striving to stay unpolluted from the rampant wickedness of the world. That's what the godly life looks like, and James simply lays it out for us. What What is it about the tongue? Does not bridle his tongue. What What is about the tongue that, that leads to such deception? Well, James is going to talk about later how the tongue is like this unruly beast. Like men have, con- they've, they've controlled like tigers and elephants, but you can't control the tongue. If anyone can control his tongue perfectly, he's perfect in every way. I mean, this is... This James is going to realize the tongue is like a, it only takes a spark to get a fire going. You know, that's just like a forest fire is started by a spark. So the tongue causes so many things. And it's because, I mean, the tongue in some very profound way is the thing that sets apart humanity from everything else in creation. So we can speak, we can pray, we can bless, we can confess, we can curse, we can preach the gospel, we can tell the truth. We can pray. And all of these things are so important. I mean, this is the, the you know, the, the main part of our lives. This is amazing, isn't it? Like the main thing in our lives is, is, our, is our, our tongues and our ears. It's our speaking and our listening. It's not our hands or our feet or our whatever else. It's, our to- it's what we say and it's what we hear. And especially when it comes to theology, when it comes to our Christian life, it's our hearing and our speaking that, that, that is going to set us apart as Christians. In fact, how does Paul say it in Romans 10? If you, can, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your lips, then you will be saved. So that the tongue is what makes the confession, the good confession, uh, before God and before man, that Jesus Christ is Lord. In fact, how about the, the whole of history is headed towards this grand crescendo of every tongue saying the same thing. Jesus is exalted above all things so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What about the the particular concern for visiting orphans and widows in their afflictions? What what is it about that that is is highlighted here by James as being the the pure, the undefiled religion? Yeah, there's the Lord as this comes from the Old Testament a lot. The Lord has a special place for the orphans and the widows. That is, for the children without a father, and for the wives without a husband. So when the husband and the father is gone then there's a great vulnerability. And we, we see that playing out every single day in our own culture. I mean, I, I, I wish that we should could just sociologically get around that fact because when people are looking, for example, about who goes to prison or who doesn't know how to read or who fails school, and they're looking at all the various different factors and they look at the economic factors and they look at the, at the ethnic factors and they looked at the geographic factors, but the factor that seems to be persistent in all of it is where's dad (laughs) is dad there. And, and so we, we recognize in, in our common humanity that, that having a dad, having a husband uh, is that there's a, something very steadying there. And when, and when the dad and husband is taken away, there's a vulnerability and now it's up to the church and to the Christian to step in and provide, uh, to care, to be with those who are in those vulnerable places. And the Lord does. So the, the Lord himself says, I'm the defender of the fatherless and the widow. And so, and so if we are also going along to support the fatherless and the widow, then we find ourselves on, 
on the side of the Lord. If we are oppressing them, then we find ourselves against the Lord, and that is a dangerous place to be. We've got about three minutes here left, Pastor Wolf Mueller. Help help us tie this together and and bring us bring us back to Jesus in sure. in all of this um, as as we wrap up this morning. Sure. So a couple of ways to do it, but to kind of to start with the idea that that as Christians we are set as very different people in the world. We're we are in the world not to not to justify ourselves to make the argument for our own goodness to let anger have its way. I mean, again, this is the self-justification. This is, that's, that's the way of the flesh. That's the way of the Gentiles. We have a different life. And it's a life that grows out of the death and resurrection of Jesus, out of the redemption that he's won for us, and out of the word of that life that's implanted in us. So that Jesus comes along and says, all your sins are mine. All your death is mine. All the wrath of God that you deserve, it's mine. All your suffering is mine. All of it, every single bit of it. I'm taking it all. So there's none left for you. So you are adopted into my family. You're, you, you are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are part of the new humanity. The, the, the resurrection has already begun by the word preached in your ears and implanted into your hearts. And now it's beginning to bear the first fruits, just beginning to bear the fruit of love and, and quiet suffering in this life while we wait for the resurrection. So that this word that is that is that has changed God's mind about us and changed our mind about God now is beginning to change our mind about ourselves and our neighbors. And it's showing up in a totally different way of living a way that's quick to listen, that's slow to speak, that despises wickedness, that pursues the good of those who are vulnerable. This new life is the life that Jesus has set us to live while we wait for his second coming. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller is the pastor at St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas, helping us this morning with James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. Pastor Wolfmuller, thanks for being with us this morning. Oh, you're welcome. Always a pleasure. The chief act of the Christian is to listen, to receive what God has for us in his word. And in his word is life. He implants that word into us through our ears, and that word saves our souls. And that word is so powerful that it wells up within us in a living and active faith that not only hears, but does, does the good works that Christ has created us to do. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.